Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. There's very little in America that people agree in about in, at the moment, very little. We know it's a country riven, divided, separated, dichotomized. We can think of all sorts of words for it. But there may be one thing that everyone, even Donald Trump, agrees on, that Abraham Lincoln was a great president. Um, my guest today, David S. Reynolds, has a new book out, a, a magisterial seven, a more than 700-page biography of Abraham Lincoln called, appropriately, Abe, uh, Abraham Lincoln in His Times. Um, David, to begin... Uh, you say that uh, America, uh, you, you call Abe America's greatest president. You seem to suggest this without any kind of qualification or question mark, of course, although your book gets very much into the detail of why he was that great president. Perhaps you might begin by explaining why indeed you see uh, Lincoln as America's greatest president. Well... <laughs> There have been about 50 interviews with leading historians since World War II, and the average ranking uh, of, of presidents, American presidents, um, oh, you know, the average puts Lincoln number one. Now, uh, in, in all those polls, he, he always makes the top three, and in some cases, um, Washington is there or FDR, but he by far gets the most votes as number one. Um, and uh, the reason I call him that in my book is that he really did save America during its most divided time. It was uh, the time of its greatest crisis, the greatest social divisions. He directed the Civil War, which killed a uh, total of 750,000 Americans, which is more Americans than died in all other wars combined, if you combine all other wars. And uh, he pursued this war, and he finally defeated uh, the Confederacy. He repaired the Union. He set the way for the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. And he was fighting to end slavery, slavery being the greatest injustice uh, that America has yet experienced. So uh, there are, uh, he, and he did such a masterful job at being president uh, during America's most divided time. So you've written this a 750 page biography. Of course, there are many, many, many books about Lincoln. Uh, what, why have you dedicated so much time? You're a very distinguished historian, uh, written many prize-winning books in the past, but how long did this book take you to research and write? Well, actually, it came, came to over 900 pages in the end, but I'm not counting pages. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, I mean, 750 yeah. texts, and then you got 150 pages of Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so 
Yeah, the uh, it well, I signed up signed a contract for the book back I think in uh, 2013 or something, and I spent about maybe uh, oh I'd say about five years of research and then two years of writing, about two years of writing. Yeah, so uh, but that's kind of you know I've done 16 books and that's sort of customary from from my big books. I usually spend between five and six years and writing a book. Yeah. What most surprised you in your research about Lincoln? Um, what, what, what didn't you know before you started researching him that you think now is central in his narrative, in his life, and in his times? I was confused because there are moments in his speeches when he can sound a little bit conservative or even racist or something like that, if you cherry pick some of his early speeches. And um, some people have done that. They cherry pick and they say, oh, look what he said here and there. But what really surprised me was that um, how close actually he was to, to African-Americans personally and how genuinely he was devoted to their rights and to their rights as eventual citizens of America. And the reason he made a couple of those statements early on was that he was in Illinois uh, at that time uh, competing for a Senate seat against a thoroughgoing racist named Stephen Douglas. And um, Illinois was a state that had the harshest black law of that time. Black law was uh, pertained to race. And uh, a free African-American that was not enslaved could not even enter the state after 1853 for more than 10 days without being heavily fined uh, or being sent to jail or being escorted out of the state. It was really, and Frederick Douglass called that the harshest black law of that sort, sort that, we, the, that we have. So, so Lincoln was in that environment competing. And uh, he said things that at times uh, sounded conservative, but believe me, he was living in, living in a neighborhood in Springfield where he was surrounded by African-Americans. He was close to them. Uh, he was beloved by them. And then when he uh, came into office, he was visited by Frederick Douglass, who called him the least prejudiced uh, white man, white person that I've ever met. Uh, and Sojourner Truth, who was an African-American woman, she came and she said exa exactly the same thing about him, as did Martin Delaney, who was like a uh, he would be a member of Black Lives Matter or whatever. I mean, he he was extremely radical, and he was so close to to Abraham Lincoln at the end. So that that kind of clarified things for me a little bit in terms of his his racial attitudes. Yeah, do you think that's important though? You know, we we yeah. know the old arguments which we don't want to go over in this conversation about uh uh people who were racist in racist times but what does it tell us about him that he was a free thinker that he was yeah. um, that he was a radical that he was committed to the notion of uh, a well, radical I think, democracy i think what was really interesting about him was that he had these feelings of compassion respect um and a desire for the best for, for enslaved African-Americans and free African-Americans. And yet he knew that if he came out publicly as a radical liberal, that he would really lose it because, and even during the Civil War, 
And that's why I use the image of Blondin. Blondin was the most famous tightrope walker of his era. And several times Lincoln compared himself to Blondin, who, is, uh, uh, who uh, would walk on the rope over Niagara, Niagara Falls without a net. And he would walk on stilts. He would uh, do somersaults. And he, would, um, he even carried a man uh, across Niagara Falls on his shoulder. And Lincoln said, I'm blonde and I'm blonde. And he, he had to position himself in the middle. Because, and, and why was that? He wanted to attract as many people as possible. And that's why he didn't even push his anti-slavery agenda as much as, let's say, William Lloyd Garrison or Frederick Douglass or some of the others, because he said during the Civil War, if I lose Kentucky, I'll lose everything. There were border states, Kentucky, Tennessee, Maryland, Missouri. And he said, you know, if I, if I lose Kentucky, I'm, we're, we're going to lose the Civil War. And if I am too rotty, and Kentucky still held, held slavery, held, held slaves, and yet was devoted, devoted to the Union. So he knew he had to be very, very cautious um, at the same time that inwardly he was radical. He had to be very, very cautious to preserve the Union. How does Lincoln compare to the founders in, in terms of his provincialism, his perhaps lower class or lower middle class roots, the fact that he wasn't that familiar with other cultures? Do you think he comes out of that comparison with Jefferson or, or, or some of the other founders in, in a positive way? Yeah, I mean, um, among the founders, the, the ones... One that he's really closest to is someone like Benjamin Franklin, who didn't have much of an education, but who had such incredible self-education. Um, Jefferson, of course, um, had a huge library, was very cosmopolitan. He knew French and he was very, very international. Washington, a little less so, but um, uh, several of the founders were very well educated. But Lincoln had less than one year of education um, and just in scattered primary schools and they were in log cabins in the backwoods. So it wasn't really, he, he's actually a very good lesson how in this day and in his day, if you want, you can educate yourself. Uh, and he was, he eventually actually outdid any of the founders. And for example, he could um, recite Shakespeare by the page, you know, he, he would memorize Shakespeare by the page and, and long poems by the page and Robert Burns and everything. Not because he was trying to impress people at cocktail parties, just because this, these works meant something to him emotionally. These passages meant something to him. And he read and read and read and he fed his own mind. So um, ultimately he was um, very wise and very educated, but it didn't come, you know, as I say, he was raised in, in a quite primitive background. So uh, it didn't come uh, like uh, Thomas Jefferson from, from formal education and so forth. David, your book is very much a book about 19th century America. You suggest that Lincoln's achievement in many ways was to somehow act as a kind of sponge to the broader culture, um, soaking it up, sucking it up, and then giving it back. Uh, very briefly, what was nine? What was the America that 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 Lincoln operated in, that lived in? Uh, what was it like? Was it as 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 violent, as frontier-like as as many people imagine? 
It was an America that was growing up, but um, the culture that he emerged from on the frontier was quite violent. And um, you had to prove yourself by wrestling people or fighting people. A big thing on the frontier was uh, fighting someone so that you could gouge out an, eye, an eyeball. I mean, yeah, that, I read that. I mean, that's yeah. terrifying. You said that he didn't actually, he chose not to actually do Yeah, that. he chose not to do that. And, and his father did. And the thing about it is that actually his father was an excellent fighter. And Abe was an excellent fighter, but they chose not to go go with the eye gouging thing. And uh, but they would wrestle. I mean, he he enjoyed wrestling, and he he imagined wrestling George Washington, who was also a good wrestler. And he said, "Oh, I think I could, I could beat the aristocrat from Virginia if he were around, and so forth." And and actually, uh, Lincoln made his way early on politically when he was put up against um, the champion wrestler of a real tough muscular guy um, named Armstrong um, in New Salem, Illinois. And uh, and the other guy, he, he, he beat the other guy fairly handily and he gained the respect, um, so much respect uh, by, by doing that. And he won the, uh, the affection of the kind of common people of his day uh, by doing that. So, yeah. Uh, but it was a violent culture, but at the same time, there was a sentimental streak as well, and there were a lot of sentimental songs. And Lincoln, the point of my book is that he bridged the, all the cultural levels from the most uh, violent and he even enjoyed smutty jokes and all of that. Well, who, to, doesn't, who doesn't enjoy a smutty joke? Uh, no, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, you write to the millions. He was Abe, Honest Abe, Old Abe, Uncle Abe, Abe the Illinois rail splitter. Was he the first truly democratic with a small D president? No. Um, Andrew Jackson, who uh, was elected in 1828 and 18, 1832, re-elected, was call, called Old Hickory. Mm. And, I mean, he was a real populist, uh, Andrew Jackson, and he was born in a log cabin and everything. Um, uh, and the difference was Jackson li literally never read another book uh, all the way through except for the Bible. Um, I mean, he was uh, the joke about Jackson was that he couldn't even sign his own name. He was so Ill illiterate, but he was incredibly magnetic to to the public. Uh, Andrew Jackson was because he was he was tough. He was you know called old Hickory, and uh, he, he had beat the British in New Orleans and all of that. And, when I say democratic, yeah. I mean somehow sucking up the culture and feeding it back to the population. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so create that kind of mirror in political life so that the people, when they saw, uh, when they saw Abe, they, they thought they were looking at themselves. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, Lincoln is, is, is certainly the first uh, one. And in a sense, yeah. Maybe the, the, the only one in the sense that so many different social classes could could um, admire him, and particularly the common man, the common person, the common individual, uh, the workers and the butchers and the carpenters and everything, because he had actually, um, and he was sold to, he didn't like the nickname Abe, but he said, you know, I couldn't have ever been elected 
president without the nickname of Abe because he was sold as the rail splitter, the rail splitter. The, and he had split many, many rails and uh, fence rails, and he had built log cabins, and he was from the frontier. So he there was something very genuine uh, about that image. Are there he, any, uh, in, in terms of future presidents, who do you think came closest, Reagan perhaps? I think Re Reagan comes, uh, you know, comes to be a close uh, second uh, to to him, because Reagan um, did have that same uh, appeal to a kind of a broad ranging, uh, uh, you know, uh, bunch of people. Uh, a little bit less so Kennedy, although I know that there, you know, obviously he mm. and Clint Clinton had a little bit of that kind of folksy appeal at the time as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think Reagan probably is somebody who comes comes to mind. Yeah. David, you 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 bring up uh, Abe's ability to walk a fine line. You talk about this this tightrope walker walk a fine line between the tradition uh, in, uh, of 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 Cromwell and, and and Puritanism, or and the, the the Cavaliers of the English Civil War. How does um, how does he compare with Cromwell and with that English tradition of uh, proto-populism or proto-democracy? Right. Well, there were two strains in his background. One reached back to the Puritans, which was like Oliver Cromwell, who led the Puritan Revolution against King Charles I. And Cromwell really stood for, for human rights and for kind of pursuing morality at the same time, reaching out to the, the common person and anti-aristocracy and all of that. And then there was the other side of Lincoln that reached par, uh, back to his uh, uh, grandfather on his mother's side, who he didn't really know. His mother was illegitimate, but she was born out of wedlock. And But he was a, uh, known to be a Virginia planter. So he was much more in the cavalier tradition. And Lincoln thought that from his mother's side, he got a kind of a sense of almost Southern honor, a sense of honor, which was kind of big, uh, you know, uh, down South. And a kind of um, sort of a, uh, this kind of gentlemanly frame of mind. But he thought he got from his father's side this kind of moral uh, uh, human rights uh, uh, kind, of, kind of side as well and devotion to social justice and so forth, which is what... Um, uh, uh, Cromwell had been been fighting for, as well as the kind of common man outreach that Cromwell did. So yeah, he he really felt that he had both of those elements within him. Uh, how does he compare with other great nineteenth-century politicians outside America? Uh, Bismarck, for example, uh, Cavour in Italy, people who were unifying their countries. Of course, uh, Lincoln was bringing his countries back together. Right. Well, I know, I think, you know, I think that uh, probably he's closest to someone like Bismarck, you know, in, in terms of unifying and, and, and pulling his country together around a kind of, not, not that you would call Bismarck democratic, but a kind of semi-populist uh, kind, kind of stance. And uh, he was really admired internationally. Uh, Leo Tolstoy said that he uh, Tolstoy, who is in, in Russia, said that um, 
Lincoln is the only truly great states, truly great statesman in, in history. This was before Churchill, of course. Uh, but even Karl Marx, um, who was in a different place, uh, uh, perhaps um, in his mentality than someone like Lincoln, but Karl Marx had his, uh, he was in Germany. He had his mind on, on the suffering masses, on, on the, the proletariat. And he said that Lincoln was really one of the very, very few people in history who was both great without ceasing to be good, without ceasing to be good. So the idea that he was someone who was, was, was a great person, but what was also a good person. The American dream, of course, of, of, yeah. of making politics moral. You say that he was a great president. And of course, I, I'm, I'm the last person to argue with you because the last thing I'm going to do is, is question your knowledge of Abe. But might it be said that America would have been better off if it had split up, that the history of the country since the Civil War has been so riven by racism and one kind of exploitation or another, particularly today as it stumbles perhaps into a new kind of civil war, that Lincoln's greatness in, 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 in unifying the country in the long run really wasn't beneficial? Well, what happened was that... Um... Lincoln was headed in a very good direction and he headed the, the country in a very good direction because the most important thing was to try to get this divided, the, the, these two countries back together as one and at the same time to get rid of slavery. Well, he got um, rid of slavery, but he didn't yeah. bring the country back together. It's still as divided, if yeah. perhaps even more divided now than it was in the 19th century. So, right. So maybe... But, it would have been yeah. better just to let the country split up and, and, and each side go its own way. Yeah, well, yeah, a lot of people were saying that back then. And um, what, what was going to happen was that um, toward the end of the Civil War, Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, even approached Lincoln through a diplomat and said, let's just have two countries. And Lincoln said, Yes, absolutely. Let's let's. Uh, no, he didn't say absolutely. He said only if you got rid of slavery. You know, only if you got rid of slavery would I consider any kind of um, uh, perpetuation of two different countries or anything like that. And Lincoln was in the dealing hand there. Because he was like the dealer because he was militarily defeating the South, and the South knew of that. So. And at the beginning of the war, Lincoln was willing to let slavery, to, you know, uh, to stay where it was as long as it didn't extend into because the South wanted to take over the West and even Mexico and Cuba and everything and spread sl uh, slavery. They were, they were really intent on spreading slavery. And but the most important thing was that Lincoln saw the fact that the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery uh, was passed. It passed through Congress in in uh, February of uh, January of 1865. So when he died in, in April 1865, he knew at that point that at least the war was won and that the slaves were emancipated. Now, ideally, what would have hap happened is that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which freed the slaves and gave civil rights to African Americans, would have set the stage then for greater civil rights to come. What happened, however, is that uh, Reconstruction collapsed 
uh, civil rights died out and we had Jim Crow America, which uh, appears in the late 1880s and really la lasts until about 1954 with Brown v. v. Board. And at that time, you had segregation and discrimination and so forth. Then you had the, the civil rights movement and you had LBJ and so forth. And you had uh, an African-American president with Barack Obama and everything. So America has been kind of struggling uh, to kind of regain the mm -hmm. sense of civil rights. But yeah, I mean, at this moment, it's uh, very divided, to be sure. But Lincoln and the Declaration of Independence and all and the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments remain, remain as kind of ideals, as, as kind of ideals that we all try to struggle to, to regain. Uh, finally, David, uh, you write about as as uh, everybody about Lincoln, but you you do it brilliantly. Uh, you you write about this guy's face. What was so remarkable about the way in which uh, Abraham Lincoln looked, and, and why was it so important in terms of his presidency and the period itself? Well, some people called thought that he looked like a gorilla. Some people called him the ape and everything um, because he had a cragged kind of good, uh, a cragged appearance. He was the first one to kind of joke about his his well-known kind of homeliness. And he said, well, I'm the ugliest guy around. Um, but in a way that kind of helped him because he lived in a culture defined by P.T. Barnum, who uh, would you know put on exhibit the oldest person, the fattest person, the smallest person, the uh, the Fiji mermaid, and 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 all this, and and uh, quite often you know Lincoln uh, kind of in a way put himself on exhibit as kind of the the ugliest guy around. But that was kind of part of his folksy humor too, and there was something sort of attractive about that. And it caught people's attention, and a lot of so many people uh, said. When I first saw him on the stage, he looks, you know, like 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 he, I was so enthralled by his looks because he was so weird looking, and then I was so caught up in his language. It was like transforming from a caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. So, in a sense, he kind of used his uh, his looks as a way of drawing people in, and uh, he ultimately came through as honest Abe and good good Abe, basically, and and gen genuine. And also grotesque, Abe, re reflecting the grotesquerie of the culture and the American obsession with grotesquerie. Oh. Uh, David, um, in these strange times where no one can go out, your, whether you, depending how you define it, 750 or 900 page book on Abraham Lincoln, Abe, uh, Abraham Lincoln in His Times, is a marvelous read. It's very accessible, but deeply researched very human and very inspiring in our times of great division. In addition, though, to your new book, what else should people be reading? I know you're, you're, you're locked down on the East Coast in New York. I'm uh, in Berkeley where you went to grad school. What should people be reading? I think that people should be reading um, Henry David Thoreau's Walden uh, for many reasons. One reason is that, you know, Walden, uh, uh, COVID, has taught us to live a little differently, sometimes to live more alone than we, than we, than we used to live. Uh, well, maybe with a few family members or whatever around us, but in Walden, it shows you, you can, you know, he, he 
lived alone in the woods for two years. And he said, you know, I've, he, he felt so fulfilled. And if you read Walden, you can really feel fulfilled. And also that's a very anti-materialistic book. Uh, he says, you know, there are a lot of things that you can live without. You, there, there, there are a lot of things you can simplify your life and actually enjoy your life a lot and, and find personal in, enrichment. So I think, I think that Walden is just a wonderful and refreshing um, a book to read, as well as uh, Ralph Waldo's Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, essays, uh, particularly the volume of first first essays by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he influenced Henry David Thoreau and Walden. But he, his essays are so refreshing and so inspiring. And again, it's not really what you own or or, or anything like that, or even how many people you see. It's the kind of fulfillment that, that you can get within your own life. And I think in a time of COVID, it's just great, great to, to read Walden and, and by Thoreau and Emerson's essays. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted yeah. by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.